0: God, we come before you and we are in such need of your help this morning. We pray uh, for your guidance, Lord, as we look at Titus 1, that you would help us to see what we cannot see on our own, that you'd help us to know and understand what we cannot know on our own. Lord, help us to be uh, doers of your word, not just hearers, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the most uh, popular topics out there today is leadership. Uh, There's no shortage of books, articles, resources, podcasts that's centered on the role, the function, uh, and the nature of good leadership. And rightfully so. Uh, Leadership is an important aspect to our society. It uh, impacts and touches nearly everything from families to schools to corporations to sports teams. And so it begs the question, what makes a good leader? Or to put it this way, from your perspective, Uh, What are the top two or three qualities of a good leader? Again, there's a plethora of resources out there trying to answer that question. If you Google that question or if you read just kind of your average book on leadership, uh, you'll come up with answers where a good leader needs to have a compelling vision. They need to uh, inspire others. They need to be determined, decisive, have a high emotional IQ, and, and the list goes on and on and on. But do you know what is largely missing on nearly every leadership resource out there? It's the necessity of having sound character. It's the heart of the leader, which is why Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 is so important for the church. See, Paul here is providing a profile of godly leadership in the church that is almost exclusively centered on character. Paul here provides 15 different qualifications of what a, an elder, a leader in the church uh, should have, and 14 of the 15 qualifications is centered on character or integrity. There's only one skill, one competence, one gift out of these 15, which is being able to give instruction. This is helpful because even in the church, there's a temptation to prioritize impressive gifts. That we want leaders who have a compelling vision, who are charismatic communicators, who are strategic thinkers, that even we inside the church can just assume that godliness is there. But Paul won't let us assume that in this text. He won't let us make that mistake of just kind of applying worldly leadership principles and applying that into the church. No, church leadership is too important. Paul will challenge us not to simply look for willing or warm bodies to fill this role, but to find men who have integrity first and foremost. In fact, that's exactly how Paul begins in verse 6. If you look at it with me, he says that the elder must be above uh, reproach. Some translations have uh, the word blameless there. This means that the elder's conduct needs to be upright and just, that no one should suspect him of wrongdoing. Now, this doesn't mean that the elder has to be perfect, no one is, or that there's no room for improvement in any of these areas that follow. It means, though, that no one can legitimately accuse him of conduct that does not match that of a mature believer, that no one can accuse him of being a drunkard, and it proves to be true. No one can accuse him of being an adulterer or a liar or a thief or or be violent, and it proves to be true. In other words, he is to be unimpeachable. Now, it's important, this phrase here, above reproach, is actually, Paul's using that as an umbrella, and he's using verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 to actually describe and unpack what it looks like to be above reproach. And what I think Paul is doing here is actually he's dividing these up into three main categories if we're looking at qualifications for an elder. He looks at first the family life and then secondly, the uh, personal character, and then thirdly, their doctrine. So let's look at each of those just one at a time. The first one here uh, in verse six is that this leader in the church, this elder's family life must be in order. Paul says in uh, verse six that he must be the husband of one wife, Now, before I explain what this means, it needs to be said that only men can be elders in uh, the church. Uh, This aligns with a complementarian, uh, complementarian position on gender roles, something that I've preached on a few times, and our elders have actually developed a paper on what complementarianism is and what that looks like in our church, so I won't belabor this. Uh, But just to kind of summarize, it's the belief where men and women are equal in value, they just have different roles in the church and in the home. And here, uh, just to state the obvious, only a man can be the husband of one wife. Furthermore, in verse 6, that phrase, if anyone, is actually in the masculine This is not in the feminine. It's not even in the neuter where it could be a man or a woman. It's in the masculine, meaning only men can be elders. Now, looking at that phrase, the husband of one wife, this is in regard to marital faithfulness and one's moral and sexual purity. Uh, Some have used this phrase to want to argue that only elders or only men who are married can be elders. So if you're single, you can't be an elder. That's not my particular position. I think that's elevating a qualification that not even Jesus could meet, uh, which I think there's some danger in that. Uh, We know that the Apostle Paul and what we do know of Titus and Timothy, they were all single as well. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul elevates uh, the the role of of singleness to a a desired status, something to to pursue. Uh, Some have even used this phrase to say you can't be divorced and and remarried uh, in order to be an elder. And I think that we looked at this in 1 Corinthians 7 a few years ago, that there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. No, what I think this is referring to is the man who is married is to be faithfully committed to his wife. I think that because even in the first century, specifically here in Crete, it was a common practice, a normative practice for married men, especially if they had financial resources, to retain prostitutes, at the local temple. This speaks to just how immoral Crete was during the time, and and the wife really had no say that, yes, it was unlawful to have multiple wives. It was not unlawful for that man to have multiple women, and so you can understand how this uh, would be played out in Crete. The gospel comes to Crete, starts transforming people, starts changing people, And so these men had to make a very serious moral choice. They were being called to be a one woman man. And Paul is saying to be a leader in the church, to be an elder, this is a non negotiable. They are to be faithful to their wife. Now, in addition to this, Paul speaks into the role as a father. If you look at verse six here, the ESV translates this phrase as having children who believe. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, it has a marking there to look down at the notes, and it says there that this could also be translated as faithful, and that's true. This phrase here, that word there, could also be translated as obedient, as trustworthy, or as faithful. That phrase there, that word, is is where we get the word faith, but it's also the word where we get obedient or faithful, trustworthy, uh, and the like. It's a word that shows up in the New Testament, over 67 different times, but 56 of the 67 uh, uses are translated as faithful or trustworthy. Uh, So the high majority is used to to translate it in that way. In fact, two of those uses appear in Titus, chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 8. Now that doesn't prove anything, but it is just to show you that you can translate that word as faithful, trustworthy, or obedient. I think the real argument here is that, yes, it could be translated as believing, sure, but that meeting is less likely because of the context and the parallel qualifications that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, Paul lists qualifications just like he does in Titus 1, and they're almost identical lists. They're not fully match for match, but there's a lot of similarities In chapter 3, verse 4 1 Timothy, Paul says that the elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So he doesn't say that he needs to keep his children saved, but he says keep his children submissive. Furthermore, just think about this logically and theologically for a moment. How in the world can a father control his children's salvation? That's not something that parents can do. Yes, we're called to to demonstrate a robust and vibrant relationship with Jesus, to to make sure our children are exposed to the the power of the gospel, but only God saves. Only God regenerates the heart. Only God gives the gift of faith. In addition, look at the concluding phrase of verse 6. I think it makes this clear as well, that the children are, are are not to be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That word debauchery was a word used to relate to orgies of drunkenness and riotous living. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The word insubordination was used for outright mutiny. Okay? So what, what, Pete, what Paul is calling the fathers here to do, this is not a, an occasional disobedience. Right? I know for me, I could exhale as I was reading and studying this. But this is referring to a deep-seated rebellion against the Father's authority. Now, why is this the qualification for an elder, a leader in the church? Well, it's because anyone who is aspiring to be an elder in the church, and and they're appointed as an elder, they are given authority over that congregation. And so one of these qualifications, we must look at the authority that they use in their own home. Are they using it faithfully? Are they using it well in their marriage and, and as they as they father their, their children? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So I think at the end of the day, verse 6, you can really put it this way: Does the elder, does he handle his family faithfully? Is his home in order? This prospective elder must be a faithful husband and father in his responsibilities to both wife and child. I'll never forget one of my mentors who looked me dead in the eye as we were kind of talking through this years ago. And he said, Chris, you do realize that the church can get a new pastor, but Lindsay cannot get a new husband. Your children cannot get a new father. That they must come first, even above your responsibilities at the church. I think that's what Paul is getting at here, the priority of an elder is that they put their family first. Well, not only that, but moving to verses 7 through 8, Paul gives another category as we think about what it means to be above reproach, this time in the category of one's own personal character. The requirement here is that the elder's character must be exemplary. The list here, again, is very similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3, not exact. Uh, But what's interesting is that in verse 7, Paul lists six negative terms, or six things that the elder must not do, uh, and he compares that with verse 8 of six positive traits, or six traits that should be uh, characteristic of the elder. Let's move through these one at a time. Verse 7, starting with uh, this this phrase, above reproach, we've already hit this in verse 6, but the literal translation here is actually not to have blame. So each of these in verse 7 is not to do this, not to be that. Here, it's not to have blame or to be uh, blameless. Again, we've already touched on that from verse 6. So moving on to not arrogance. This means not to be overbearing, not to be prideful. Uh, this is a, a, a phrase that's used to describe someone who seems to always get his way. And I think this is really important as we think about Qualifications for an elder, a leader in the church, it's so instructive that one of the first traits that Paul says to avoid has to do with pride. Pride is so very deadly. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says this about pride that spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christianity. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. It is the main source of all the mischief the devil introduces to clog and hinder the work of God. That's why pride must be avoided as we think about elders and leaders in the church. The next one here is not a quick-tempered. This means that this person needs not to be a quarrelsome person. This is someone who gets angry quickly and often. They have a short fuse, that their anger tends to rise quickly to the point of exploding in uncontrollable behavior. The next one there is not a a drunkard, or the the little translation there is addicted to much wine or heavy drinker. Drinking alcohol is uh, in moderation is permissible, but drinking alcohol excessively to the point of drunkenness is unacceptable. The next one is not violence or not uh, to be a a bully. This is someone who's prone to violence, both physically and verbally. Someone who's always ready for a quarrel, always ready uh, for a good argument who likes to push people around. And then the sixth one there is not greedy for gain, not greedy for money. This is not just someone who desires to earn money. This is someone who actually idolizes money, who seems to never be satisfied with what one has, always looking for more. Now, we can look at these six negative traits, and we can take a step back and say, okay, Paul, we are to avoid men who are arrogant, angry, violent drunkards who only care about getting rich. It seems like a pretty low bar to me. Like thinking about, okay, that's that's pretty clear. That's pretty easy. Like if you're a Christian and a growing Christian, you probably check all those boxes. Well, this speaks to just how immoral Crete was during this time. Crete was actually the the, the center point of all pirate-like activity during the first century. It's incredibly immoral. Furthermore, the church here was very young. They're, they're dealing with very young um, believers. And yet, even though these six negative traits may not be Uh, very challenging to us, these six positive traits will. So as Paul moves from the do not do list, he moves to verse eight to the do list. Look at verse eight with me. The first one there is to be hospitable. This means that there's a willingness to open up their home and lovingly welcome others, to not idolize their home, but to view their home as a tool in order to bless others. Secondly, to be a lover of good. They're devoted to what is good. They're they're devoted to that which is beneficial for others. Third one there is self-controlled. This is a fruit of the Spirit, so this speaks to one's life being controlled by God, but especially in the way of their thinking. This phrase could also be translated as being sound in mind, to be sensible and sober-minded. The next one there is to be upright or Uh, righteous. They're consistently doing the right thing. The fifth one there is holy or pleasing to God, that they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're not being polluted by the culture around them. There's a a love for God and and the things of God that really stands out when you look at, at their life. And then last one, there's disciplined. There's a a mastery over oneself. They're able to restrain passions and desires and even to conform them to doing uh, what's right. I look at that list, and that's much more challenging. Uh, Again, the, the goal here is not looking for perfection, but the goal here is to ask the question, does this man possess these traits? When you look at their lives, are they consistently and regularly welcoming people over into their home uh, they're lovers of good. They're lovers of what is right. They're self-controlled and disciplined. They're upright and they're godly. Are these true characteristics of their life? Okay, now that's the second category. The third one though here is in verse nine. And this has to do uh, with their relationship with God's word. I think this uh, this qualification, verse nine, speaks to two things here. I don't want us to miss it. It speaks to one's doctrine but also their posture with the word of God. Look at verse nine with me. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. A phrase there, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. This means to hold fast, to to cleave to. So the application here is that if an elder candidate does not love God's word, cling to God's word, and stand upon God's word as being completely trustworthy and sufficient and authoritative, he should not be a leader in the church. That an elder candidate could be theological all he wants, he could be sound in doctrine, but if practically he does not love the word of God and rely upon it in his day in and day out life, he should not be a leader in the church. This is important because elders are responsible for ensuring that God's people are well-fed, that they're fed the, the meaty and satisfying word of God. And so they could believe that the word of God is true, but if they don't know how to even feed themselves, how are they to even feed God's people on a weekly basis? That's what Paul's saying here, that they are able to teach and give instruction in sound doctrine. This is so important. I think one of the main tactics I'm sure that you experience on a daily basis, but one of the main tactics of our enemy is to to cast doubts around the clarity and the authority of God's word. He is doing that on a daily basis to God's people. Do, Do you know what the first words are by Satan that are recorded in the Bible? You know what the first words are? He's with Eve, and he's in the garden, and he asks her the question. He, he says, did God really say? Did God really say? See, casting doubt on the clarity and the authority of God's word. That's his main tactic. And so that's why it's a necessity for an elder, for a pastor, a leader in the church to stand before God's people and say, thus saith the Lord from the Bible. To to make it clear, to make it compelling, and yet without compromise to say, this is what God's word says, and to do so with authority. That must be a non-negotiable for a leader in the church. An elder must possess a frame of mind that filters everything through what the Bible says They are to avoid being a pragmatist who first asks, does it work? There are lots of those people walking around, especially in churches. The first question isn't, what does the Bible say or is it biblical? Their first question is, does it work? Is it effective? No, we want men who first ask, what does the Bible say? And that they are committed to faithfully obeying that. I don't know about you, but I want to take a step back at verses 6, 7, 8, 9. It's clear that churches need men who are leading their families well, who are godly, who have a genuine love for Jesus, and who stand upon the word of God without compromise. That's what the church needs. The church needs men who have a, a kind strength to them, who are gentle but have convictions, who are humble and yet have a confidence in the word of God, who are gracious and yet saturated with the truth of God's word. Men who are not afraid. You know, men who believe wholeheartedly in the promise that Jesus gave that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That the church needs men who are living lives and setting an example that's worth imitating. Now, why does this matter? let's move to application, thinking through kind of maybe you as a congregant, maybe most of us in the room are probably never going to be an elder. You're probably not aspiring to be uh, an elder or maybe even a a leader in the church. So how might we apply this passage together? There's three things that come to mind as I think about application from Titus 1, 5 through 9. Here's, Here's the first thing. We need to be reminded that character trumps giftedness. Character trumps giftedness. Again, 15 qualifications here. 14 of them have to do with integrity and character. Only one related to skill or gift, and that's teaching. This shows us giftedness matters, but character matters even more. Character is king. Even in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13, Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, and to live godly lives waiting for our blessed hope. Look, according to Paul, God has graciously redeemed his people so they might reject ungodliness and reflect his character to the world. Therefore, godliness is mission critical for the church. And just like any group of people, churches tend to take on the character of their leaders, of their pastors. And, and most of the time, if you have an ungodly pastor, that will produce ungodly churches. And the flip is also true. Godly pastors tend to give rise to godly churches. That's why it is a necessity for churches to prioritize in, in terms of appointing elders to be men who are godly, who love Jesus. Also reminded of a statement my mentor said years ago. He said that an elder's public ministry will only go as far as his private or personal ministry. Man, that is so true, that, that, that the elders' private kind of personal relationship with the Lord, who they are when no one else is around, that's gonna eventually come out in their public ministry. I was thinking about that. I was reminded of, of Charles Simeon. He was a pastor in the seventeen eighteen hundreds. 1800s. He had a phenomenally effective ministry for over 54 years. He received a letter from his good friend, John Thornton, which reads this way. It says, Charles, watch continually over your own spirit and do all in love. We must go downward in humility to soar heavenly. I recommend you having a watching eye over yourself, for generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people." Uh, Robert Murray McChain, another pastor in the 1800s, reiterates this point. He says, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. And that's so true. There are so many spiritual counterfeits that exist that the church needs men who are living examples of the transforming power of the gospel. Who can say, I used to live this way, but because of the gospel, I now live this way. And it's all because of the gospel. Now, there's an application for you in here. The application is that you, even as a congregate, not an elder, not a leader, but as a congregate, you need to prioritize godliness above all. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how skilled or how many gifts God has given you or how many people like you. At the end of the day, the most important question is, are you taking tangible steps in looking more and more like Jesus? Like, when you stop and you consider, am I more godly now than I was a month ago, than I was a week ago? Am I looking more and more like Jesus? Look, we're all called to living a life of godliness. Yes, the leader, the elder first, but also the congregant. It's the most important question you can answer yourself at the end of the day. But then another application here is that an elder's example is good, but Jesus' example is better. But just to avoid making this passage all about man here, let's apply this to Jesus and the hope that we have in him. That while an elder's example, the way that he lives, should be worth imitating, yes and amen, Jesus' example is so much better. That yes, an elder is to be above reproach and blameless, but there's only one who can be truly called blameless and without sin. That yes, an elder is called not to be arrogant, but there's only one who perfectly embodies humility and service to others. That yes, an elder is to avoid being quick-tempered and a drunkard, violent, and greedy, but there's only one who has ever been sinless, who is perfectly kind and patient. That yes, an elder is called to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, But there's only one who has perfectly displayed all that is good, all that is beautiful, and all that is holy. That yes, an elder should hold fast to the word of God. But there's only one who has been called the living word. And this living word dwelt among us 2,000 years ago, and his name is Jesus Christ. That this living word 2,000 years ago not only lived a perfect, sinless life, not only leaves us with an example to follow, but this living word got up on a cross and he died in the place of sinners. That he died in order for us to have salvation and to have forgiveness of our sins for all who believe in Jesus and trust in him. Look, an elder's example is good, but Jesus' example is so much better. And if an elder is doing his job well, he is always pointing the the focus and the attention and the spotlight on the Lord Jesus and away from himself and away from his own ministry. I want you to focus on who Jesus is and the example that he has set that we are called to follow. And then thirdly here, the last one, this is gonna be self-serving, but elders need encouragement. Elders need encouragement. Now, I want to say before I get into the details here, you guys do a wonderful job at this. I just want to say that out loud. I have so many text messages and, and written letters and emails and, and notes that, that many of you have dropped off at, on my desk or have sent my way. I keep all of those. <laughs> I've got a file where I want to hold on to those and actually review them from time to time. The reason why I do that is because it's just it's so meaningful for me that there's a a weariness that comes from ministry, that I love being a pastor, love being an elder. But speaking on behalf of the Elder Council, there is a huge weight and even a, a weariness in being a, a leader in the church, that being a leader in the church is unlike uh, any other leadership context, that the issues that we wrestle with, they, they have... Um, eternal significance, eternal consequence. We're dealing with with people's souls and spiritual matters, and there's a a weight to that that we can't just simply turn off. I wish there was. I wish I could get home at the end of the day and just kind of leave my work at work. But man, I I wear it. I I wear the the burdens of of our church and and the issues that we go through and trying to lead the church faithfully and definitely not complaining. That is a high privilege. But that's why I think elders and leaders in the church need your encouragement. So let me to give you four ways, just practical ways that you can encourage your elders. The first one is, is that you can pray for them on a regular basis. I'm going to challenge you to even to pray for them by name. We're, we're all on the website. You can find this there. And if you're wondering, well, what do I pray for them about? Well, you can look at 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5 as great text just to ground your prayers for us. So number one, just pray for them. Number two is to encourage them. Uh, You can do this in ways of writing a note, an email, or however the Lord leads you, but having a word of encouragement goes a long way. And thirdly, have a joyful disposition toward uh, being led, wanting uh, to be led, not being that type of member who doesn't want to be led. I'm not asking you to be a blind sheep who never asks questions. That would be unhealthy as well. I'm encouraging you to be the type of, of member that wants to be led, that gives the benefit of the doubt and trusts their leaders. And then fourth here is to grow in godliness. That's one of the best ways that you can help your elders is to walk closely with the Lord Jesus. I'm so thankful for this text. It is challenging just to even review it in my own life this week, but I'm thankful that we have in God's word just a clear profile for godly leadership in the church that some of the the worldly principles of leadership are helpful, but this must be the priority, that we must hold to these standards as we joyfully do ministry together in seeking to know Jesus and to make him known. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the clear instruction that we have. Lord, this is a, a tall order to be an elder, a leader in the church. And yet, God, we're thankful that you call and that you appoint elders in the church to be able to help your flock. And Lord, I pray as we think about this calling that, uh, Lord, that the elders and the leaders would grow in their godliness, that you would protect them, that you'd protect the, the unity of the elder council. You would give them a sweet love for you, Jesus. You would protect their marriages and their families. And Lord, as a congregation, that we would be unified and aligned in Jesus. Got to pray that you would continue to use Pennington Park Church to be the light, to be the salt in this community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.